Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? What a great praise and worship time. Mm-hmm. Um, went to a funeral yesterday of a friend that we've known for a long time, although we didn't see them all the time, but, I mean, for probably 25 years. And uh, this couple just loved the Lord with all their heart. And just, you know, when we first met them and... Um, uh, the wife was always praising God, and I mean, it was like Jesus seemed to me. It was every other word, and when I first met them, I thought, oh, give me a break, and then I grew in the Lord, uh, but um, this this was the best funeral I ever went to yesterday. They praise and worship the Lord, and uh, Mike's son got up and, and talked about his dad, um, but he said uh, the day before he died, uh, I was by his bedside. He was, Mike was very lucid, and uh, he said I was talking to him, and he kept looking around me like he was looking for somebody, uh, like you would in a crowd of people. And, um, you know, the family had, had five children and grandchildren, great grandchildren, and the family had said goodbyes a lot, okay? And, um, and his son said, uh, uh, well, Dad, I, you know, if I don't see you again, I'll, I'll see you in heaven. And he said um, something about the people. And he said, no, he said the most important one's going to be here at 2 o'clock tomorrow. And uh, his son said, okay. And uh, the next day, the son got the call. And I don't remember the exact time. It was like... 137 or something, and he immediately went to where he was, and uh, and he had passed away, but the nurse had not been there to listen to his heartbeat to get the time of death, and when she came, the time of death was two o'clock, and I've known these people for a long time. They just, I just want to be able to love the Lord like they loved him, Mm. and uh, it was just great. We just all clapped, and, and it was just a great funeral. And uh, I want to remember that because that's how I want mine to be. Amen. Amen. A homecoming. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? So this morning our portion is Teruma. Okay, so Moses is receiving instruction from God on the construction of the tabernacle. Now, there's a little bit of a debate as to when these instructions were given to Moses. Because if we are looking here in the sequence of the Torah that we've been reading, that God has come down on the mountain, Sinai. He has brought the people into covenant with him and called Moses up on the mountain And he has been giving him instruction last week, many commandments. And then this week we go into the instructions concerning the tabernacle. And next week we're going to be covering more, a little bit more about the tabernacle, but a lot focused on the priesthood with the garments and the inauguration. And then the following week we're going to come to the story of the golden calf. And... Some, some believe that these instructions for the tabernacle were given after the sin of the golden calf as opposed to before it. And I don't know that I can weigh in and say, here's the way it is. So I'm just kind of presenting a couple of ideas. But one of the commentaries with regard to why is it that God would give instructions for a tabernacle is... The, the concept that the children of Israel had all come to Mount Sinai. They had been there and seen God's presence come down on the mountain. 
They had seen the fire. They had heard the words. They had heard the voice of God. They had come to a level of prophetic vision that most people cannot say that they have come to. And the people had reached a high spiritual status. So much to the point where some, some commentators say that they, they were at a place where in which they themselves could be the vessels that housed the divine presence and such that a temple was not needed. And so what would make them fall from that status apart from the sin of the golden calf, where in which now they were, they were not the vessels fit for God's presence. So instead, God placed a tabernacle in their midst. Now, you know, if we think about the, com- the commentary that says that they were at a place where they could house the divine presence, right? We can quickly think of allusions to the idea of what we know today as believers, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God's presence dwells within us, and that he does so because Yeshua, because of Yeshua's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection, and then that he has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And because he has ascended, the Spirit has been sent. And Yeshua said that it was better for his disciples that he would go away. Because once he went away and went back to the Father, then the Holy Spirit would be sent and the Holy Spirit would dwell within them. Now, I I mean, I I love the illustration here, right? Because we've been made a new creation. We've been made those vessels which can be that which houses the Holy Spirit, that can be a temple of the Holy Spirit. But even both in, in ourselves individually and when we come together collectively. Now, within that, we might also be tempted to say, well, see, now that the Holy Spirit has come and he is in the believers, there's no need for a physical temple. But we're not going to go there, uh, primarily because the scripture says that there will be another temple. Uh, it's primarily, if you read in Ezekiel chapter 40 and beyond, there's a temple to come and God's presence will enter into that temple. And we're looking for that to be at the time when Yeshua is ruling and reigning on the earth during the thousand year messianic era. And then, of course, we even look beyond that, right? And there's a time in which the temple will no longer stand. Okay, so the temple doesn't stand now. It will stand again. But then there will be the age to come where there will be no temple because God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, right? And that comes from Revelation 21. But if we think about what's the purpose of a temple. What's the, what's the purpose that God is pursuing in it? And there's many reasons that we can, we can look at, but the primary one that I'm thinking of this morning is the aspect of communion, of God's desire to fellowship with his people, to be near so that his people can draw near to him. And so we can look through the course of history and we can see that Uh, God created a form of a temple in the garden when he created the enclosure that he placed Adam and Eve in, right? It had had, uh, sides all around that opened to the east, and he placed Adam there to serve and to work, which are the same exact words that he describes as the work of the priesthood in the temple. And so that was a form of a mini temple where God's presence dwelled and walked with Adam And then, of course, after his sin, man was banished from the garden, and God placed two cherubs, two cherubim, at the entrance to the garden to guard the way to the tree of life, is what the scripture says. So they were preventing, these angels, these cherubim, were preventing Adam and Eve from gaining access to the tree of life. Because if they were to eat of it, they would live forever in their degraded state without the renewal, right? So there was an importance of keeping them from this tree of life. And so then we go through many things, right? So we go through many stories throughout the book of Genesis. You have the the flood, you have the Tower of Babel, and then Abraham comes on the scene. God chooses him and begins to build a family. A family 
that God says that he is taking as his own and he will give them a land. He will be their God and they will be his people. And so now he's redeemed that people out of Egypt, brought them to him at Sinai, and he's giving instruction on building a tabernacle for his presence to dwell in. And I believe that the primary aspect here is that God is working out an increase of his dwelling presence on the earth, building up to the ultimate culmination at the end of Revelation, when the Father descends, when all things have been restored and made ready for the age to come. And that age to come being when God and the Lamb are the temple and the light for the earth. You know, uh, Trish was talking about um, her friend's passing in this homecoming in heaven. And last night, Heather and I were watching um, a documentary by Lee Strobel, and it was, I think it's called The Case for Heaven. And so he's going through and talking about various aspects of uh, near-death experiences and people from all over the world having commonalities in their experiences that point to an afterlife, point to something that lies ahead. And, you know, one of the things that they said is people always are always wondering what, what happens, what's to come. And, you know, some people don't know, right? Many people do know that there is an afterlife to come and there is life with God. There is uh, the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous and there's a judgment that comes. But one of the things I was thinking of is, well, do you want to go to heaven, right? And, you know, you ask that question, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, absolutely, I want to go to heaven. It's like, well, why do you want to go to heaven? Okay. And if we really get down to the ultimate reason why you want to go to heaven, I mean, sure, it might be some aspect of why I want to avoid some kind of end. But the other thing, the main thing is really to be present with the Lord. To be present with the Lord is the aspect of going to heaven. Now, heaven is temporary, right? Heaven has an end that is to come. And there, instead, the, in the world to come, we'll be here on the earth, on a renewed earth with God. But, but the goal is being with God and communing with Him. And of course, what we're looking forward to isn't reserved just for this world to come that I'm talking about. It's for the here and the now. Because God's presence is near to us. And so the question is, are we going to draw near to him in this moment and take hold of what he's provided? Are we going to enthrone Yeshua as king in our hearts now and walk accordingly? And with that, I think I'll jump into the scripture here in, in Exodus 25, verse 1. Verses 1 through 9, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the aphod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So an alternate translation says, every man whose heart motivates him shall you take my portion. And the portion is the word teruma. Teruma. The teruma can be translated and understood as a heave offering, a dedicated object, or a sacred object. Okay, these are things that were given for the purpose of 
constructing a sanctuary for God's presence. And the root word for, for teruma is room. Okay, and this means to uplift. means to uplift. So the word teruma points to the idea that both the object that is being given and the one bringing it are both elevated through this aspect. Okay, because you, you look at these objects, right? You've got the gold, you have the silver, you have all these yarns. They're beautiful, right? They are, uh, they're expensive, they're beautiful. But even with their beauty, they're common until they're set apart for something sacred. And then they become uncommon, right? Now they, now they are, they start out common, now they become holy items, holy items set apart to God because they're being set apart for a higher purpose. It gives them a special status. They become uplifted. And within it, within what God's asking the children of Israel to do in this passage, he's saying, I want you to recognize that what I've given you can be used for common purposes or for that which is wholly uncommon, right? Wholly uncommon. Sorry, I didn't mean that to really be a pun thing. But it, uh, but to, for things that are to be holy and set apart for God, they can, they can take on something greater than just what their material aspect is, right? And these offerings were free will offerings. The construction of the tabernacle, the building of a place for God's presence came from two desires. It came from the desire of God to dwell with man and the desire of man to have God dwell with him. But God was looking for people who had the heart and that desire to say, yes, Lord, I want to make a place for you. It'll take sacrifice. It'll take giving. Giving that which is expensive, rare, valuable. But I see the higher purpose. I can look beyond just the immediate, the temporal, and I can look to the eternal. I can look to what it is that you are going to do in our midst with that which I offer up to you. And that's where verse 8, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, comes in. Because they're taking these items and they're creating a sanctuary. They could build a beautiful building. Beautiful buildings have been made that had common purposes and did not have the dwelling presence of God in them. What makes God's sanctuary truly beautiful is His presence in it, his nearness in it. And so we can look even, you know, we we're talking about how we ourselves are temples of the Most High. Well, everyone is made in God's image, right? Everyone has a spark of the divine in them. But then it's for us with motivated hearts to create a space within us for God's presence to dwell. Right? He's going to send the gift of the Spirit. And then, what is the vessel that will house it? Is it a vessel whose heart is established on righteousness and justice? A heart who has placed Yeshua as King and Lord over their life? Because that's where the Spirit is going to flourish, and that's where this vessel that has been created in the image of God will become holy, will become that which God has desired and intended from the beginning. It's beyond what we can do on our own, even though we are fearfully and wonderfully made, right? We've been knitted together. But then he says, but there's more, and I want to pour more into you. Will you prepare your place? Will you make a place? Will you make yourself a sanctuary so that I may dwell within you? Because that's what the scripture even says here. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell betocham. Betocham. Among them is one translation. 
within them is another. Both are valid translations. His desire is to be among us and within us. And you know what at the end of the or in the world to come, when I'm talking about there is no temple for God and the Lamb are the temple, we will still be vessels, a temple of the Holy Spirit, even though the temple is here physically too. There will be both him being among us and within us. Right? It's not, it's not either or. And even when the third temple stands, when Yeshua is reigning, he will be among us and within us, but even more so in the world to come. Right? So there's glorious things to look forward to. But God is saying, Moses, I want you to construct this tabernacle, and this tabernacle will travel with you to, in all the places where I lead you. And when you travel, this tabernacle will be at the center of the community. When you camp, this tabernacle will be at the center of the community. And everyone will have their tents camped facing the tabernacle. Because this, my dwelling presence, is to be the center of your life. The center of your going out and your coming in. The center of when you sit down and when you rise up. That's what we say in the Ve'ahavta, right? That God would be our very focus in everything that we go and do. Within the instructions given in this week's portion, God gives commands regarding so many aspects of the construction of the tabernacle, from everything within the elements that go within it, that are used in the service, that are for the planks and uh, how the tabernacle is to be constructed, the coverings that go over it, great detail given. And he says to Moses multiple times, you shall make it according to everything that I show you on the mountain. Right? So Mo Moses is on the mountain in the presence of God. He is there for 40 days and 40 nights, neither eating nor drinking. And I don't know if you know this, but that 40, 40 days of not drinking, uh, you can't actually live through that. Right? They, it's about three days, roughly, that you can go without water and live. Now, there are some stories where people can go a little bit longer. But 40 days without eating or drinking, so how does Moses survive? Right? Of course, we can say, well, he's in God's presence. Right? But there's also an element where it's said that when he was on the mountain, he was in heaven. He was in God's presence, and he was in a place that was not of this world. That he had entered into a space and out of time where he was with God. And so he was, he was in a different arena, right, where he could, where he would be sustained in that. And in that arena where he's in heaven, he is seeing the heavenly tabernacle. And God says, I want you to make a tabernacle like this on the earth. I want you to make a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle. Right? Because a shadow is a lower dimensional representation of a higher dimensional entity. Okay? So if you hold your hand out, like up here on the stage, I can see my shadow on the ground. The shadow has many of the features that my hand has, but it does not contain all the features of my hand because it cannot represent it. It's a lower dimensional representation of a three, it's a two dimensional representation of a three dimensional thing. It lacks color, it lacks uh, the depth, various aspects, but it's still a presentation so that I can recognize what it is. So the, the temple, the tabernacle that Moses is building on the earth is a lower dimensional representation of the heavenly tabernacle. It is 
not as grand. It is not as glorious as what Moses saw on the mountain, yet it is glorious and it's beautiful. And then when it houses the divine presence, it's something else. Now, why was it beautiful? Why was it beautiful? And you can think of various things. It's to reflect the glory of God in some aspect to the best of, of the ability of what can be done here on the earth. But it's also to give, it's a, to arouse awe in the beholder, the one who's drawing near to say, I'm coming into a place of beauty, coming into a place of glory. So God, God's, the design of it was in part to help us see how glorious He is. And within the vessels that are contained in the tabernacle, God had them, in most cases, made of wood overlaid with gold. But the menorah itself and the mercy seat, did not. they were not first made of wood. They were one ingot. They were each one ingot that was hammered out into all the forms that he said to make it. But inside the tabernacle, it was gold. The, the vessels were gold. The instruments were gold. And it, that was to reflect the high stature of the place. And on the, on the altar of incense, and on the table of showbread, and on the Ark of the Covenant, God said that you shall make a crown all around it. And so it was a decorative crown placed around these, these three items. And the sages say that the three crowns represent three different, well, the, these three crowns represent the crown of priesthood, the crown of kingship, and the crown of Torah. And what they say is that, I'll read this, this is from the Talmud, it says the, the regal appearance they provided symbolized power and authority. The crown of the altar symbolized the crown of priesthood. Aaron was deserving and took it, and the priesthood continues exclusively through his descendants. Right, And that's, that's through a covenant of salt that God gave to Aaron that the priesthood would be in his family forever. And then the crown of the table, the table of showbread, symbolized the abundance and blessing associated with the crown of kingship. David was deserving and took it for himself and his descendants after him. Right? And we know that that also was a covenant of salt that God gave to David, that he would never lack a man on the throne. And then the crown of the ark symbolized the crown of Torah. And they, the commentary says, it is still sitting and waiting to be acquired. And anyone who wishes to take it may come and take it and be crowned with the crown of Torah. Perhaps you will say it is inferior to the other two crowns, and that is why nobody has taken it. Therefore, the verse states about the wisdom of Torah, through me kings will reign quoting Proverbs 8.15, indicating that the strength of the other crowns is derived from the crown of Torah, which is greater than them all. So when I think about the crown of Torah, and, and so why is it the crown of Torah, the one on the Ark of the Covenant? Because the two testimonial tablets were placed within the Ark, right? So the crown is around the vessel that contains the Torah. And so... But now they say no one has, has taken it, right? And it's for who is willing, whose heart motivates them to go and to take this crown of the Torah and to walk in it. All right? Well, we know that Yeshua the Messiah, he has the crown of Torah, right? We talked last or a couple weeks ago about how he gave right interpretation to the Torah and how he walked fully in the Torah. He was crowned with the Torah. 
And it's interesting to think that it's the crown of Messiah. It's the crown of Messiah and that the other crowns derive their, their strength from this one. And then God calls us to walk in the footsteps of Yeshua and to take on the crown of Torah, to place the Torah within our hearts so that we may walk in it. And, you know, when I was speaking about it earlier, about within our heart to have righteousness and justice being the foundation in our heart, that's the foundation of God's throne. In Psalm 89, 14, the scripture says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Well, righteousness and justice, okay, that can be a picture of the two tablets that were placed within the Ark of the Covenant, covered by the mercy seat where God said that he would speak from above it, right? So within the foundation of God's throne, this Ark of the Covenant, within it are the two testimonial tablets, which are the two edut, the two witnesses, okay? That's the literal definition is, these are the two witnesses that stand and testify what righteousness and justice are, and they are the foundation of God's throne. And so when God says that he will write his Torah on our hearts, he's saying he's going to write the foundation of his throne into our hearts, where we are to seat him as king. Right. And righteousness and justice... was highlighted to me quite a bit this week um, through the reading of Psalm 82, through the reading in, toward the end of the book of Judges, uh, 1 Samuel. The interconnectedness of things this week that I was studying was just shocking. Um, and I don't know that we're going to, how much of it we're going to go into But I feel like there is a judgment getting ready to come on those who are not walking in righteousness and justice. I'm not trying to make that a prophetic word, but just the degree to which we see our society, the church, governments, you name it, uh, walking in unrighteousness and walking without justice, actually thumbing their nose at justice. God is not pleased and he is not mocked. And he will begin to bring judgment at some point in time. And we know from the scripture that the judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Um, and he's calling us to know what righteousness and justice are so that we can align ourselves with him and not with the ways of the world, not with the systems of the world, but with his system and with his plan and purpose. Um, you know, it's actually in the book of Ezekiel where he sends out his angel to go and place a mark on the forehead of those who weep at what's being done in God's temple. Here it is, actually. Um, Ezekiel 9, verse 4, The Lord said to, to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Okay, so he was getting ready to send a judgment on these people. And those who had the mark were going to be, uh, the mark of God on their forehead were going to be preserved, but those who did not would come under judgment. This mark is a tav, by the way, uh, and it corresponds to the mark spoken of in Revelation that's placed as a protection over the people when God comes to move and to judge. The tav uh, interestingly enough, in its uh, proto-Hebrew form, I believe is the one that it is, is actually a, a cross, um, kind of like to the side. It's, it's, like, it's like an X 
but also shaped somewhat like a cross. Um, but anyway, but God is going to mark his people for protection when he moves in this judgment. But the thing, I guess the thing that stood out to me in it is that we are a people who are so desperately in need of God's nearness to keep us grounded, to keep us connected, to keep us walking in righteousness and justice. Because it is so easy to fall into the traps of sin and to see demise come quickly, right? You look at where our nation is and where the church is from where it was 40 years ago, it's a stark difference, stark difference. And we talked about the sin of the golden calf, right? Well, the sin of the golden calf came 40 days after coming into covenant with God. That's pretty quick, not 40 years, 40 days. Okay, so that's a, that's a big deal. And why I'm talking about this is that I was drawn back to 1 Samuel um, this week, and I began to read, and this is about uh, Samuel being given to Hannah in answer to her prayer. But something else that's going on in this time is that Eli is the priest, and he has these two sons who are serving there in the tabernacle in, in Shiloh, and they are completely unrighteous. They are taking parts of the sacrifice that are not due to them. They are creating all kinds of abominations, doing all kinds of detestable things for which they're going to come under judgment. And I don't know what it was. Something drew me back to Judges because it's like, okay, well, where, where did the book of Judges end? And how does that line up with 1 Samuel? Because we know that the period of the Judges is coming to a close when Samuel comes in, into the scene. And so I went back to the book of Judges, and the end of the book of Judges is not, it's not in chronological order, funny enough. Because the book of Judges goes through many stories of the Judges, goes through Samson, and then it goes back to the time of when Phineas was the high priest. Well, Phineas, you know, he's the one who uh, took the spear and put it through Cosby. I think it was a Don, I can't remember. Some, someone <laughs> of the tribe. And uh, so the daughter of Cosby, I think, and someone from Travis Simeon. But anyway, it's that guy. Okay, this guy was at least 40 years old when the children of Israel came into the land. Okay, and so if we assume that he didn't live past 120, we know that the stories that happened at the end of Judges were within the first 80 years that the children of Israel came into the land. And if we look at the stories of what took place when they come into the land, it's jaw-dropping of being like, what? What are you doing? You know better than this, or you should know better than this. Because... You have, a, you have, okay, I'm going to start uh, Judges 17, okay? There's a man named Micah, and he has an idol fashioned. He's in, the, he's in the land of Ephraim. He has an idol fashioned, and he has an aphod created, and he sees, he finds a Levite passing through his land, and he says, hey, you're a Levite. Well, I'll be blessed if you become the priest over my home and over my village. And so this, this Levite turns in and he says, yeah, I see you've got all the things we need. Let's do it. And so he begins to serve, which, okay, this, this, this is a Levite, not of the descendants of Aaron. Okay, it's just, he's a Levite. Now the tabernacle is in Shiloh. The priests of the Lord are serving in Shiloh. This is before the time of Eli and his sons who are doing terrible things. 
and they know that there's only one place that they are to go worship, and but yet they're going to have someone who's not of the Aaronic priesthood begin to, to serve. And the story goes on. I'm not going to go into all the details here. But we find here in Judges 19 or 18, verse 30, it, the, the tribe of Dan had come by and they had said, oh, wow, you're a priest. You got the aphod. You have an idol. Come with us. And so he ended up going with the, the Danites. But anyway, it says, The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan, or of the Danites, until the day of the captivity of the land. Now, when you read this, you say, okay, Jonathan, the son of Gershom. Gershom. Well, isn't that Moses' son? But then it says the son of Manasseh. Ah, that's where the scripture actually says the son of Moses. But a noon was placed in the name, small and kind of high up to where it was interjected into the name. And the sages say that, that the noon was interjected there and placed hovering kind of in a place where you would recognize it's not supposed to be there as a way of safeguarding Moses' name, a protection of his character. Because how could his grandson be going and doing this? And that's shocking, right? That the grandson of Moses could be walking in these ways. And then you go forward from here, and the next chapter goes on and talks about a certain Levite who took a concubine who was unfaithful. He goes to retrieve his concubine, and when he's coming back, he comes into a city within the land of the Benjamin, uh, within the land of Benjamin, town of Gibeah. And you see the entire story laid out just like what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah to the point where you're reading it, at least I'm reading it, and saying, I, I can't believe what I'm reading here. Um, so, here, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and read this part. Judges 19, he comes into this, this land. Okay. I'll start in verse 16 of Judges 19. It says, so, so the, the, uh, this Levite, he's gotten his concubine, he's come back, he's trying to travel back to his land, but he stops in the town of Gibeah. And no one took him into his, into his house. So he arrived there and he couldn't find anybody who was hospitable. So he was sitting down in the open square of the city. And behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. And now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah. But the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. For I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem and Judah. But I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with you and your servants. There is no lack of anything. So the old man was saying, come with me. I have everything that you need. And the old man said, peace, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. This kind of sounds like Lot talking to the angels, right? Don't stay in the open square. Come stay with me. So he took them into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were making merry, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out to you 
and you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish, but do not commit such an act of folly against this man. I feel like I'm reading out of the book of Genesis. We just need to change a couple names. Okay, but this is a town of Benjamites in the land of Israel. While Phineas is reigning, while Phineas is the high priest, okay, in the first 80 years of coming into the land. The men would not listen. They seized the concubine and brought her out. And by the morning, she was dead. And this is a story where he sends, he sends message out to all of Israel of what has taken place. And all of Israel comes and they inquire the Lord what they're to do. And the Lord says, go up and attack. Okay, because why do they need to go up and attack? They needed to go up and attack because the tribe of Benjamin, upon hearing what had taken place, said, well, the people of Gibeah are our brothers. Okay, there's like about 700 men, I believe, who were of this Gibeah town. But 26,000 of Benjamin said, no, we stand with them. And so you have 26,000 Benjamites versus 400,000 Israelites doing battle. And eventually the Israelites win to the point where there's less than 1,000 men of Benjamin left. Okay? But, and there was great mourning over the almost loss of a tribe. But what I bring this up because so quickly these children of Israel in these two stories had wandered from the truth of God's word. They had wandered from righteousness and justice to the point that they sought their own way of worshiping God on one hand. And on the other side, they had come to become just like the people of Sodom who were destroyed and they knew the story of Sodom, but yet they walked in it because they did not have righteousness and justice established in their heart. Okay, righteousness and justice existed in their midst, but until it had actually come into their heart and come part of their being, they were going to be likely to go and wander in the ways of the world. They've been called a holy people but without the presence of God truly within them, without Him being their central focus, they were left to their own devices. And one of the things that's said over and over in the book of the Judges is that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? They were wandering according to their own ways. And the children of Benjamin should have known better than to say, I'm going to stand with the unrighteousness of my brothers just because they're my brothers. And because they chose to, to align themselves with unrighteousness, they too came under the destruction that the many men of Gibeon were going to come under. There is a great importance for us to walk with discernment and wisdom in these days of recognizing what is righteousness, what is justice, what is truth, and how, will I, how, how can I walk in it? How can I place that within me and keep my eyes fixed on Yeshua, seeking His presence, seeking His discernment, inquiring of Him so that I can walk in His righteousness You know, the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. And sometimes I'm judged in that. I don't know how many of you are, right? But there's a fountain of life that's placed in us that is to well up and to overtake us. But it's for us to choose that wellspring of life. It's for us to choose with motivated hearts to make ourselves a sanctuary for God's presence. 
to pursue Him, to make a place for Him where we can meet with Him. Because it's not enough just for us to say, I'll meet with Him when I'm in heaven. We need to be meeting with Him now. And it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take time. It's going to take taking something which is common and setting it apart for that which is holy. It can be time we set apart. It can be the gifts and talents that God has given us. It can be our monetary resources, the whole gambit, right? All of these things are gifts from God. And he says, does does your heart motivate you to take some of that and give it to me? Because when you do, you lift it up. You raise it up for a greater purpose, for a greater purpose in revealing the kingdom and a greater purpose in elevating you as well as this dwelling place of the Most High. One of the things that is spoken of with the bread of the presence is that God says you will have the bread of the presence before me continually. And every Friday, new bread would be baked, 12 loaves. And these 12 fresh loaves would be taken and placed on the table of showbread. And the weak old bread would be taken down and divided among the priests. And and they, they would eat and be satisfied. And according to the Talmud, according to tradition, the bread, when they took it off of the table of showbread, the week old was still warm. It was still fresh. I don't know about you, week old bread uh, sitting out on the counter usually doesn't do too well in my house. Uh, but this bread was as though it had just been freshly baked. And, and there's a few aspects for this, right? One, this bread was in the presence of God. It was in the holy place, just outside the partition that separated between the holy place and the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And in one aspect, we can say, well, there is no decay in the presence of God, right? There's no decay. But on the other side, within the tabernacle, there are divisions that are created. Hmm. So you, you enter into the tabernacle. There's a screen in the front. You enter in through that and you come into the holy place where there's the altar of incense, the menorah, and the table of showbread. And then there's the partition that separates the holy of holies from the, the holies, from the holy place. And inside of that partition is where you have the Ark of the Covenant. And what the sages say is that each one of these divisions is moving from this world into an area that is otherworldly. Okay, So when you enter into the screen, into the holy place, you've moved out of the area of time. So you're no longer constrained by the time of the world. You're in a different arena, which is part of the reason why the priest has to be very careful to keep his prayer short on the day of Yom Kippur, because he's in a place that is timeless. How long are the people waiting outside for him to to come back out? But anyway, so you've entered into a, a place that is without time. And then when you enter into the Holy of Holies, you've entered into a place that is not just without time, it's without space. Because, and we, we may get into that some other time, but the dimensions relayed in the Torah about what's in there indicates that the Ark of the Covenant took up no space. It's fascinating, right? But essentially, it's a, it's a well, it's a place of God's dwelling presence 
And if you think about these aspects, it sounds maybe a little fantastical to say that you enter into this area and you're without time. You enter into this other area without space. But yet God says, my presence is in there. Yet how can, how can it contain him when the highest heavens cannot contain him unless it's this place without space? Fascinating thoughts, right? But anyway, so the thing is, you've come into this place that's without time, a place of God's dwelling presence, and the priests are eating of this bread that was there. And as the number of priests increased, the amount that each priest got became smaller and smaller. And according to the Talmud, what would happen is that even when they were given just an olive's volume of bread, they would eat it and they would be satisfied. Okay, so the, the Talmud speaks of it as being like a multiplication of the bread. And they even, note, they even note that sometimes they would have bread that was left over. And so it's interesting to think about this aspect, right? Of, okay, so this bread of the presence, this, this bread that was placed on a table that had the crown of kingship on it and symbolized prosperity and blessing to the, the nation had stories around it about God multiplying it and making it more than enough to the point where there were leftovers. Okay, so now when we're talking about this, your mind should be going towards Yeshua and the story of what he did in, in the book of Matthew. Um, in the book of Matthew, there were two times that he multiplied the bread. The first time he took seven loaves and he blessed God, and five loaves. He took five loaves to feed the 5,000 and, uh, and blessed God, and they divided it, and they gathered up baskets full of leftovers, and everybody ate and was satisfied. 5,000 people, five loaves. And then you go forward, and you have uh, 4,000 people fed with seven loaves. And again, baskets of leftovers. You had within that story, there's the, of course, the, the picture of God's provision, but there's the allusion, of course, to, to images of Yeshua being the bread of the presence, right? The bread that came down from heaven. The one who has the crown of kingship, the one through whom blessing and prosperity comes to the nation over those in which he rules. And another element is this idea of multiplication. Okay? I believe it's the Ramban. He says that, uh, that God does not... So since God finished creating at the very beginning, He no longer is creating things out of nothing. Instead, He takes that which is and He multiplies it from what it already has. So he takes the bread of the presence, he multiplies it. He takes the bread that Yeshua blessed him for, and he multiplies it. He takes the oil in the story of Elijah with the widow woman, and he causes it to keep pouring and pouring until all the vessels are full. So he takes that which is and causes it to increase. And in the same way, he takes that which we offer up to him, and he multiplies it and he causes it to grow, right? And that which he's placed in us, he can increase and he can grow. But he's looking for the partner in each of these stories, right? The priest taking the bread, dividing it and spreading it out, Yeshua having the faith, blessing God and trusting that he's going to multiply it by the power of the Spirit and giving it out. Elijah having the widow go ask for vessels and pour. So God says, I want to commune with you. I want to relate with you. But I'm looking for you with a motivated heart to give to me and see me multiply it. See me cause it to well up within you, to burst forth and have the overflow of your heart come out through your mouth and through your hands and your feet. That you can be one who carries the crown of Torah, who walks in justice and righteousness 
and reveals the kingdom of God in this place because you come from that place where he is seated and enthroned in your heart. Such that he would be revealed and known in all the earth and that the world would be made ready for his presence to come and move in our midst. That we wouldn't just have his presence within us, but that we would have his presence here among us as well. And he calls us each to be fitted together as living stones into a body. May we help each other walk in righteousness and justice and truth and not be of those like the Gibeah, the, those of Gibeah and Benjamin who stood with them and encouraged them in their waywardness, but instead be of the children of Israel, of the other tribes who came and said, we're going to sacrifice greatly to have righteousness restored. All the while doing it not with the heart of vengeance, but with a heart of restoration and reconciliation. Because even after the, those of the uh, nation of Israel had wiped out the people of Gibeah and Benjamin, they were mournful. They weren't celebrating and saying, yeah, we did it. They were saying, Lord, will you not build up your remnant? And so our heart is to look for the remnant, the restoration and be those who help bring that about. Amen. Does anybody have anything that you'd like to share? I couldn't help but think about Psalm 119, verse 24. It says, For your testimonies are my delight. They are also my counselors. And I was thinking about the whole thing you're talking about, righteousness and justice, and how important it is to be in God's Word and to stay close, and how important it is to have people in our lives because we... The reality is, is that all of us have or will make decisions. We have a, we have a great, not great, but sad gift of being able to justify what we want to do, and how we want to figure out a way to make something right, even though we plainly know it's not. And all of us have decisions that we, you know, have come across or are making or will make, that they have consequences and people are affected, including ourselves. But yet we we can walk in that justification of why why it can be right and why we need to do this. And yet if the Bible is our counselor, the word is our counselor, and we are walking in righteousness and justice, we'll, we won't make those decisions. You know, We won't allow ourselves to be, and especially in our culture today, we are very individualized. And so we, you know, the idea of having accountability to God's word, much less anybody else, is, is not always easy. We don't always like that idea. That's why I'm thankful to have somebody couple of men in my life that I'm very close to that do keep me accountable. We keep each other accountable. And I think that's a very extremely important place to be so that we can continue to seek out that righteousness and justice and not justify. Because it's so easy. I remember running something by someone to, this week and just before I did it, just kind of thinking through, you know, my decision to say or do something or, you know, whatever. And it helps to think think through it and to walk through that slowly and decide whether should I say this or do this? Is this a good decision or not? You know, and so we really have to, to have that. We really have to be able to slow down long enough to let God speak into those moments. So we don't go down. Like you said, how quickly, how quickly we can go astray. I mean, it can, you say it's maybe years, but it can be a week or a month even. I mean, it's so quickly we can make a decision that affects us for years. And so I just pray that we, as God's people, will let God be our counselor. Let his word constantly be around us and surround us as it should. Amen. Anyone else? I just want to add to what you said. Um, you said it's not a prophetic word. But I've been talking to my kids a lot about that this week, how something is coming. We don't know what it is, um, but we do need to be ready for it. And it is related to judgment. It is something where we as a church need to be ready. And I don't necessarily think it's because we're going to be judged, but oh, it's almost tangible. Whatever it is, it's, 
we need to be ready to stand firm. I can't necessarily put it in more words than that, but I, I do feel that. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, we, we, we do have to stand firm, firmly rooted in the word. Amen. And standing together. All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that your throne is established on righteousness and justice. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Torah. We thank you that you've given us Yeshua. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would cause to stir up within us hearts that are motivated. Lord, that desire that we have to pursue you, Lord, may you fan the flames that it will increase and that we will pour our hearts into you. We will seek you out and that we will find you and know you as we were singing earlier, Lord. The more we seek you, the more we find you, the more we find you, the more we love you. Lord, I ask you to move in our hearts and transform us. Lord, may you bring us to the place of your desire. And may you be glorified in our midst. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.